myself. Good morning. There we go. It is great to be with you all this morning, and my heart is just ready to hear from the Word. Singing with the saints, praying with the saints, I am excited to open God's Word with you. So if you would, please grab a Bible, grab your Bible, or the blue Bible in front of you, and we are in Genesis chapter 23 this morning. If you use the blue Bible, it's page 18, page 18. For the last um, months, maybe, we've been working through Genesis chapters 12, the end of 11, 12, and we're going to end in 25 in this series as we take a look at Abraham's faith. Abraham's faith. Earlier this year, actually, we, we did gospel foundations in Genesis 1 to 11. We took a break, and now we're, we've just been looking at Abraham and his, his faith as he follows the Lord in Canaan. And this morning, we see an interesting turn in his path. So Genesis chapter 23, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his bed and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bear your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in and out at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, Throughout its whole area 
was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. What a day to preach on death. A rainy, dreary day. As I was considering how to frame this sermon, what picture could I use as a starting point or a jump off into this text this morning? I found myself constantly coming back to the idea of hardship, facing hardship in life, and the formative nature of those moments. If you jump around the internet, you'll find quotes to inspire you and to encourage you in any kind of hardship you can imagine. I found one website that had over 100 different quotes on one page. A lot of quotes. And they came from sources ranging from Helen Keller to Dolly Parton, from Seneca to Abraham Lincoln, and from King Solomon to Oprah and Joel Osteen. So there's a lot of breadth there of who can maybe possibly, probably not, encourage you in moments of hardship. Now, outside of the quote attributed to King Solomon, which is really just Ecclesiastes 7.14, it's funny, you can go to Scripture and find encouragement in hardship. Outside of the quote to King Solomon and, and the one to Charles, of Charles Spurgeon, which said, all of life is hardship except eating pancakes, and we say, amen. Outside of the quote attributed to King Solomon and Charles Spurgeon, the rest of these encouragements were really just about you, the reader. They're all inward-looking messages. They encourage you to just, just see the silver lining. It's all okay. Think positively. Hope means holding on to positive expectations. They remind you that in the end, some of your greatest pains become your greatest strengths. To quote the sage Drew Barrymore, what this highlights, while I'm not saying that there's no wisdom outside, what this highlights is how prevalent hardship is in life. No one is immune to it. It is part of the human experience common to all of us. So much that everyone has some kind of quote-unquote wise word to say about it. And our text this morning, I think, acts as a guide reorienting us, giving us a biblical view and a biblical approach to facing hardship. In this text, Abraham faces a great hardship, the greatest anyone faces while they're still alive. That's the death of his loved one, the death of his bride, his princess. This chapter is entirely about how Abraham responds to the death of Sarah, after we read the words, and Sarah died in verse 2, we should immediately ask, how's Abraham going to react? What about the promises God made? What does Abraham's faith do now? What does faith look like in this moment? This chapter is a fresh reminder that death is still the great equalizer in life, even among the covenant people of God. 
And what we see is that moments of hardship, especially in the wake of death, as Abraham is here, these moments reveal what we believe and where our hope rests. How we respond in these moments reveals what we believe and where our hope rests. In this passage, we see that Abraham not only trusted the Lord with the living, back in chapter 22, when he takes his living son to sacrifice him at God's command, but he trusts the, trusts the Lord with the dead as he buries his bride in the promised land. He wept, he mourned, and he trusted. And we need to take away from this passage then that the people of God reveal what they truly believe when they weep from the pain of death and when they live with the hope of faith. The people of God reveal what they truly believe when they weep from the pain of death and live with the hope of faith. We're going to explore both of those ideas, weeping from the pain of death and living with the hope of faith as we go through the passage this morning. And to help us do that, we're going to break this chapter into three sections. A death lamented in faith, verses 1 and 2. A tomb purchased in faith, verses 3 through 16. And a wife buried in faith, in verses 17 through 20. A death lamented in faith, a tomb purchased in faith, and a wife buried in faith. Look back at your Bibles with me. I'm going to read the first two verses again where we see a death lamented in faith. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So we start this section reading, Sarah lived 127 years. That's amazing. That's a long life. She had Isaac when she's about 90, because Abraham's 100, and she's about 9 or 10 years younger than Abraham. She's about 90 years old, having a baby. That's a pretty big milestone. And then she lives another 37 years. But now, at the end of the age, at the end, at the age of 127, like everyone else, Sarah must face death. And while we're very familiar with the concept of death, remember back in Genesis 1 through 11, how many people died? Everybody's dying. Death is everywhere. There's a chapter devoted to saying, and he died, and he died, and he died. This is actually jolting to the reader. Because since Abraham came on the scene in chapter 12, no key character has died. This is the first death within the covenant people of God. No one has died within the promise We've been living in this text almost absent of the idea and the notion of death. But now it comes back on the scene and it affects one near and dear to Abraham. Just notice how prevalent the idea is of death is in this text. Scan over the chapter, verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, twice in verse 6, verse 8, verse 11, verse 13, verse 15, verse 19, 10 times. Death is mentioned. Sarah's death is the thematic focus of this chapter, and we need to feel that. It's here to remind us of the continued presence of death and to ask what Abraham's faith looks like 
when he faced it. And what does he do? How does he respond? Abraham mourns and weeps. This is the first time that we find these words in the Bible. Abraham mourns and weeps. These are strong words. These are weighty words. The word for mourn is the word that we'll see later all throughout the Bible translated as lament. Usually, it's over a loved one. When David hears about Saul and then his dear, dear friend Jonathan's death, he mourns, he laments, same word. When Bathsheba hears how Uriah has been slaughtered in battle, her husband, she mourns, same word. It's for someone who you love dearly. And the word for weep is later used here in Genesis. When Jacob's given the blood-soaked robe of his prized son, Joseph, as his brothers sneer at their deposed brother, Jacob weeps, the same word, the same picture, tearing his clothes, brokenhearted for his son. That's Abraham's response. He mourns and he weeps and he laments. And of course he does. Of course he does. He and Sarah have likely been married over a hundred years. Think about that. We don't know their age at marriage, but in their culture, it's safe to expect. They didn't wait until after they were 27 to get married. Maybe probably a little bit earlier than that. And she's 127. Regardless of the exact number, they're married a long time. And for every step of this journey of faith, for Abraham, we've been focusing on Abraham. Sarah has been with him. Sarah's been there on the mountains and in the valleys. Sarah was with Abraham whenever God called him out from Ur, whenever he was promised offspring as many as the stars, whenever he was brought into the covenant sealed by God in chapter 15. Sarah was there. And when Abraham would fail, potentially endangering his wife, lying about who she was to him, Sarah was there. And whenever God promised that the cries of a baby would come from their tent, through the pain of delivering the only child, through the tears of joy, holding and seeing this promise of God in her arms, Sarah was there. She was with Abraham every step of the way through this journey of faith. She is his closest and dearest companion. She is literally his princess. And now she lies before him, a victim, we're all under, a victim of the curse, we are all under, dead. What else could he do in this moment but mourn and weep? And friends, I think it's very important, I know we're two verses in on 20, and we're 10 minutes in on 40. I think it's really worth pausing for a moment and considering these words. The world trivializes death, lightening its impact and its severity, numbing its pain and muting the cries we ought to release. And I think that Christians, we can buy into this ourselves, into the trivialization of death. And friends, it's a lie. It's a lie to you and it's a lie to the world around us that looks at us to see how we react to death. 
To not mourn and to not weep the dead is not a posture of strength and victory. John Calvin wrote, of all the people you'd imagine writing this, wrote, for to feel no sadness at the contemplation of death is rather barbarism and stupor than fortitude of mind. It's not strength. Instead, as Matthew Henry writes, what is sown must be watered. What is sown must be watered. Death hurts. Death hurts because it is a curse. And that's the truth we need to tell through our mourning. It's not just a part of life that happens. It is the ever-present, constant reminder that we are cursed because of our sin. We must mourn and weep at death because it ought not be, and yet it is. We mourn that what was no longer is. What was once united and full of life is now broken and lifeless. We mourn the sin that brings death. And we weep as we lose our loved ones in this present life. Friends, we must mourn and weep. We do mourn differently as Christians, and we'll get there. But don't jump over sorrowful to just get to rejoicing. We must be sorrowful and rejoicing. Christ himself wept at the death of his friend, hearing the death of Lazarus, knowing the broken hearts that his sisters have, feeling the pain of living in a cursed world himself, still having the power to raise Lazarus, knowing he's about to, Jesus wept, friends. Christians, we must acknowledge death for what it is, and we must mourn properly. As we said when we started, moments of hardship, especially death, reveal what we truly believe. Downplaying mourning and weeping over death, trivializing death, says that we don't truly believe the curse is as painful as it is. But proper mourning tells the truth about death. Abraham shows us that mourning begins with an acknowledgement and an expression of the pain of death. Mourning and weeping. And I do want to note, this will look different for different people. Mourning and weeping is not a one-size-fits-all. you got to make sure you look exactly like that person when they mourn and weep. That's not the point. But the point is to not buy into the world's promotion of a celebration over the sobering nature of death. Because that's denying the reality of the curse that we live under, trivializing sin and its consequences. We must tell the truth about sin and death, and we do that as we mourn and weep over our dead. But, as I said, we mourn differently. And so mourning does not stop here. It's only two verses of the 20 to come, the 18 more to come, right? Abraham's not ruled by it. We are not ruled by our mourning. Yes, we weep from the pain of death, but we also live with the hope of faith. This is exactly what Abraham shows us next as he purchases a tomb in faith. So in starting in verse 3, 3 through 16, I'm not going to read all those verses again. I'm going to summarize them. What we see is that Abraham mourns and he weeps, and then he rises. He rises. We read in verse 3, from before his dead, and he goes to speak with the Hittites about acquiring a tomb. 
Now for us today, it's at this point where we're a little bewildered by the text, if we're honest, right? Verses 3 through 16 are kind of like, what is this? What is going on? The ancient Near East legalese is not the most easy to digest. Any legalese is not the most easy to digest, unless you're a lawyer, who we love. Um, but, I mean, think about it for your own life, right? You sign up for a new email, you sign up for a new social media platform, that's, or you sign up for anything, it seems like, you purchase something. Whatever you do online, there's a terms and condition that pops up. Do you read it? I mean, really? Do you really read it? No. No, you don't. You scroll as fast as you can to the bottom because you're so smart, you can trick the computer. And you scroll as fast as you can to the bottom showing that I read it, click the accept box and go on to the next page. We can't do that here, okay? We can't do that with these verses. The ancient Near East legalese that we read in these verses may cause us to scratch our heads and we want to start skimming, acting like chapter 23 just goes from verse 2 he mourned and wept for Sarah to verse 19. After this, he buried Sarah, but it doesn't because Abraham's actions in the middle here tell us something. They reveal something about his faith. It's a testimony to what he truly believes. So we're going to look at him. In these verses, we see two major movements or two scenes, if you will. <clears throat> First is verses three through nine. It's Abraham's inquiry. He's looking to buy a tomb. He walks on the car lot, perusing the, 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 the merchandise, the available cars. Abraham rises from Sarah's body. He goes to the Hittites. And now what he says is really interesting and telling, though. He says, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property for a burying place. Then the Hittites respond to him with some niceties, calling him a mighty prince or a, a prince of God. It just depends on your translation. And what do they offer him? Verse 6, bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb. So both parties are pretty clear what they want, what they're going after, and what they're willing to offer. Abraham wants his own tomb a possession, property, to bury his wife. And the Hittites are willing to loan a tomb. You can use one of our tombs. No one's going to withhold his tomb from you. Okay, you see the difference there. But apparently, Abraham heard something in their response. He heard something that thinks maybe they just need some more clarity, some more specificity. So Abraham makes his move, and he requests that the Hittites get a hold of Ephron. Call Ephron. He's got, he's got the cave, the exact one that I want, the exact model, size, color, everything. He's got what I want. Get a hold of Ephron. And what do you know? Who happens to be sitting there? Ephron. Ephron's there. And now the second scene comes up. Okay, so the inquiry happens. Now we're down to two guys. Negotiations commence starting in verse 10. It seems like Ephron has been present, right? And he's heard three things. First, this guy wants to buy a tomb. Second, this guy's a mighty prince, which means probably has some money. Third, this guy will pay full price. Abraham's very clear, full price. 
So Ephron says to Abraham, don't just take the cave, take the field too. Let's up the ante. Take it all, Abraham. Now at this point, for us, it's important to note, scholars and commentators are not exactly all on the same page as to the ethos of this conversation, right? Is this a gift? Is it truly generosity? Maybe. Maybe. Put a little italics on that. We don't know. But reading the text and knowing the human condition present in all generations and all cultures, nothing new under the sun, this sure does seem like a clever sales tactic to me. Right? I mean, imagine if you've traveled to the part of the world, any part of the world, that has lots of booths and salesmen, and they're just lined, and they're, they're there waiting for you, right? And you're walking down, you see something like, oh, hey, how are you? They start grabbing your hand and putting their arm around you, calling you brother, bringing you in, pouring you some mint tea. Like, everything's going great. They've got exactly what you need. You don't just need a cave. You need the land, too, right? To me, that seems like Ephraim. And notice that Ephron says, again, he reiterates, I'll give it to you, Abraham. I'll give it to you. That's not what Abraham wants. He maintains that he will buy it at full price. So Ephron throws out a number of 400 shekels, coyly, coyly adding, but what's that between you and me, Abraham? We're old friends. We've known each other for five minutes. What is 400 shekels between us? I'll tell you what 400 shekels is. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. We can't be exact in our estimation. We don't know exactly what it was, but we ex expect it to be more than a lifetime of wages for a common laborer. Okay? David paid 600, granted, gold, but still 600 gold shekels for the site of the temple, prime real estate in the middle of Jerusalem, or close to it. And the shekel in David's day couldn't be what it was worth in Abraham's day with inflation. It's got to be a lot of money. This is a lot of money. And regardless of the exact value, we know from the text, this clearly seems to be a lot of money. Yet, Abraham pays it. He pays it in full. He pays it in public. And he pays it in step according to the current weights. Right? This is a clearly above-board deal. How can Abraham do this? That's our question. Why would he give up so much just to buy a tomb? This is a really striking set of verses here. Why are they here? Why is Abraham spending all this money? Two reasons. First, it's because Abraham's a sojourner. How can he spend this much money? Why would he spend this much money? Because he's a sojourner. Did you catch that? At the opening, uh, his opening statement, Abraham says, I am a sojourner among you. He has no land and he has no home. And purchasing the tomb reveals where Abraham believes his home truly is. It's an act of faith. Just like mourning re reveals what he truly believed about death. Abraham's actions here reveal that his true home is the land that the Lord has promised him. While he doesn't own it, he knew that it would be his one day. 
He's investing in what the Lord has promised to him to be his. The author of Hebrews talks about this. He explains, these all died in faith. He's talking about Abraham, actually Noah and all, everybody before Abraham and Sarah. These two died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's what Abraham's doing. He's acknowledging, I'm a stranger, I'm a sojourner. I know there's a promise to come and I trust that that promise is coming. This is not my home. I have no home. That's my home. I'm investing in it. That's a sojourner's mindset. Abraham and Sarah never received the things that they were promised, but they saw glimpses of it. He didn't see the the number of offspring as many as the stars, but he saw Isaac. He didn't see Canaan to be his, all that dust, but he did get to have a tomb there. And so Abraham invests in the promises of God, just as a sojourner does. This isn't Abraham trying to put down roots necessarily. This is Abraham putting down a down payment on the promises of God. He's investing in his true home, his promised home. It may not be his home now, but it will be because God said it would. And Christian, we are also sojourners. We are sojourners. Paul tells us in Philippians that our citizenship is not of this world, but a heavenly citizenship. And Peter, in 1 Peter 2.11, explicitly links us to our brothers and sisters of the past, saying that we are sojourners and exiles. And as sojourners, we should live like it. We do not cling to this world because this is not our home. We do not simply invest in worldly pleasures and security, but we invest in the kingdom of God. To the world, it may seem insane if you give all of your wealth and all of your time, all of your efforts, so that the glory of God may be seen by and shared with others. But Christ says that is laying up treasures in heaven. You are spending your 400 shekels on a tomb in faith as you generously give and live as a sojourner, not clinging to this world, but looking to the one to come. And just a side side note, the whole uh, treasures in heaven. I think we need to keep in mind the picture here, Christ, all of Christ's teaching, all the New Testament, all the Bible, the, tre- the treasure seems to be the joy that you get to have as you see how the Lord used your stewarding of his gifts to you so that he would bring his people to saving faith. The treasure of seeing how every dollar and every hour and every late night Bible study, every heartbreak, all of those things are used for the good and glory of God, for the good of people and the glory of God, used by the Lord to bring the joy of salvation into the hearts of his people. That's the treasure. That's the treasure. We see here Abraham putting his money where his heart is. His heart is here. He's investing in it. He's not leaving. In the wake of Sarah's death, Abraham shows us he believes his true home is the one promised to him by God. And so he is committed to staying in his promised home. Friends, we have been promised a home to come. And how and where we spend our resources reveals what address we believe is our final. That is the first reason Abraham spends so much on this tomb because he's a sojourner. The second reason is actually our next point. 
And it's all related. The second reason is our next point, though. Abraham spends so much money because he's committed to burying his wife in faith. Faith that the promises of God will come to pass. Look at verses 19 to 20 with me. Verses 17 to 18, we just see that he gets all the property, right? And then after he gets all the property, verse 19, after this, Abraham buried his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. As we've seen, Abraham's a sojourner. And so in one sense, that explains why he and we shouldn't flinch at the idea of giving up worldly treasures for heavenly ones. But there's something more to this chapter. Something bigger. Something I've been wanting to get to the whole time. Something that gives us context to everything that we have talked about. And that something is Abraham's unwavering hope in the promise of God to come to pass, even through death. This isn't said in the text, but we see it in Abraham's actions. First, as a sojourner, we would expect Abraham to take Sarah back to Haran, or probably Ur, right? I'm, I think of myself, I don't know why, this is probably really strange, but I think of myself, if I died tomorrow or today, uh, I don't know the next minute, if I died, I would expect my body to be taken back to Missouri because I'm from Missouri, and that's where the other tombstones with my family's names are on. Like, I don't know why. I just would expect that. We expect Abraham to do the same thing, especially because at the end of chapter 22, what does the author remind us of? Abraham still has family, and they're thriving. There's lots of them. Pastor Dan talked about how it's a contrast between the strength of his family back home and the weakness of his family here in Canaan, Right? It's also a reminder, Abraham has family back home, and Sarah died, so he should probably take her back home to bury her. So he's a sojourner, we expect him to go home. Also, the one character in the Abraham narrative who is almost always talking is chillingly silent this entire chapter. Who is it? Did you notice? In this entire chapter, God never speaks. But for the last, how many ever chapters since chapter 12, where it opens with God speaking, God speaking all the time, his promises are always referenced, and Abraham's wife is dead, and God doesn't speak. We'd expect him to probably just go back home now. And third, back to the negotiations we see that Abraham's faith is unwavering and his hope is unwavering because he is so adamant to not do what we expect. He is so adamant to purchase the tomb here. He doesn't want to borrow a tomb. He wants one as a possession, recognized by everyone. This is a public sale and there's no haggling. Another reason he pays 400 shekels is so that no one can say that Abraham got a cheap deal on it and he doesn't really have rights to it. It's his. It's a marker and a reminder to him and to everyone else that this is our land. This is a family tomb. Sarah's buried there. Abraham will be buried there. Isaac will be buried there. Rebecca will be buried there. Jacob will be buried there. 
Jacob buries Leah there. This is a marker for this family that God has promised us this land and we're not leaving. It's ours. Abraham is adamant about the burial of Sarah in Canaan, in a tomb that they have property rights to because he believes the Lord and he believes that the Lord is faithful to keep his promises even through death. This is why the 400 shekels are truly nothing to Abraham. Abraham, and let's give it some context here. Why can he be like this? Why can he believe that God will deliver on his promises even after the covenant people are dying? Sarah's dead. Abraham's older than Sarah, so he's probably gonna kick it soon too, right? How can he be so confident He just saw God bring somebody back from the dead in chapter 22. He saw the Lord bring his son back to life. The Lord provided a substitute so that his son Isaac, who was as good as dead, right? Abraham is holding the knife ready to slaughter his son. And God says, no, stop. His son is as good as dead, literally everything but physically dead, he saw him come back to life as God offered and provided the perfect substitute for him to die in his place so that through that death, Isaac would live and the promise would continue. Are we seeing what what Abraham saw on on that mountain? Abraham saw someone provided to die so that the promise would continue in life even through a death. And so, as he mourns the death of his beloved wife, Abraham continues to cling to this hope that he has, the hope that he's seen through the resurrection of his son, the hope that there is no distance the Lord will not go and no obstacle that he will not overcome to fulfill his promises to his covenant people. And this is what God does over and over and over again through the entire Bible. This is Abraham's story, and this is God's story, right? Sarah's barren. How am I going to have a son? Well, here comes Isaac. Israel's enslaved for 400 years. Here comes a murderer shepherd to lead them out of Egypt. Israel's in exile. Well, here's a pagan king, Cyrus, to send them home to build a temple to worship another god. God is silent, just like he is here in the death of Sarah. God is silent, and his people are still in exile. They still don't own the land. There's still not a Davidic king. There's darkness. And here comes a baby born in a manger, God's own son, God himself, to live the life that his people continuously fail and to die the death that they entirely deserve. And then Jesus is crucified. He dies the death, and he's buried in a tomb. This is the final end. There's no coming back from this. He's dead. And here comes the third day. And as the sun rose in the sky, the God, God the Son rose from the dead, showing not just the distance that the Lord will go to keep his promises, through dying on the cross, but that there is no obstacle that will stop him from keeping his promises by overcoming death itself. That is the hope that Abraham's looking to 
to come in the future and that we rest upon and look that already happened in Christ. Because Jesus is alive, we know that death is undone and that the promise is fulfilled. So while Abraham did not know of Jesus, he knew that the Lord provides. He saw it on the mount. He knew that the Lord will go any distance and overcome any obstacle. And so he buries his wife in faith, knowing that the Lord is true. The Lord's promises will come to pass, and they have. In Jesus, the true offspring of Abraham, all of these promises are fulfilled. It is actually through the death and resurrection that they're fulfilled, that all the nations are blessed, that all of God's people are united under his rule, that Abraham has more offspring than you can count, and that the earth, not just one small land in some desert over off the Mediterranean Sea, but the whole earth is his kingdom awaiting his glorious return. Abraham had a shadow of the living hope when he looked to Isaac. We have the living hope when we look to the cross of Christ. And we can live with the hope of faith. Faith in the Lord who provides and hope that he has and that he will. And so we draw from that two applications to close with here at the end. First, if you do not have this hope, friend, if you find yourself constantly looking for help in hardship, when considering or having passed through with a loved one death, or in positive thinking, and the silver lining will simply let you down and will die with you. But the good news the good news is that Christ does not tell you to look inward. Christ does not tell you to get it together and stop mourning and weeping before you come to me. Christ does not say, conquer your hardship and then I'll help you. He just says, look to me. Come to me. You who are weary and heavy laden, looking for hope, looking for an end to the sin that you were enslaved to, looking for something that will conquer this always present reminder that we are sinners and dead, looking for hope, then look to Jesus. The living hope who is ready to cleanse you from your sin so you can face death knowing the pain but not entrapped and enslaved to its burden and ready to comfort your broken heart. I encourage you, stop seeking your self-righteousness and seek the one righteousness of God. Stop looking to worldly comfort and come to the great comforter, God himself, collapsing into the arms of Jesus. Come to him, friend, and you will find the hope your heart needs. Second, Christians. What we do in the wake of death matters. I think this is very important and timely for us today in today's culture. We already talked about how we should mourn and weep, but it includes more than just mourning and weeping. What we do in the wake of death matters, and that includes what we do with our dead. 
How we treat the dead reveals what we believe. And that's why I think that the Bible gives us a principle, not a command, a principle, that we sow the dead. We bury them. Now, I want to be very clear, and I do not want anyone to hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that if you didn't bury your dead loved one, you have sinned. That is not a sin. I am not saying that if you didn't bury your dead loved one, they cannot be resurrected. That is not true. What I am saying is this. Laying to rest the dead in bodily burial uniquely reveals the hope that we have in the resurrection. It uniquely reveals the hope we have in the resurrection. I get it. I'm not a scientist, and I can even tell you that most bodies will be decomposed before our Lord returns. It's not about the science per se. It's about what we say through our actions. When we lay to rest our dead, we are saying this body that the Lord made is going to rise. We are saying that this body that he made good and beautiful with dignity will live and breathe again. It's what we say through our actions that matters. And just as the tomb was a testimony and a reminder of Abraham and his, faith's, his family's faith, the tomb marked and reminded of their faith in the promises of God, every saint's headstone is a testimony, a reminder of their faith and hope in the resurrection and ours in placing them there. It's a reminder of the hope we have. It's not a traditional thing. It's not just simply something people have done for tradition. It is, I believe, a biblically warranted practice. It testifies in life and in death that this life is not all there is and this body is not done. Christ is alive. He is returning. He will resurrect and this one will be alive. That's what we're saying, friends. That's why it matters. What we do in the wake of death and in the wake of hardship reveals the truth of what we believe. The overarching point is just, just that. What we do reveals what we believe. Our mourning acknowledges the darkness in which we find ourselves, yet the darkness that we can dance in because Jesus is alive. It's dark, but Jesus is alive and we have hope. We can mourn and rejoice. Our sojourning reveals where our true home is and our true treasure is. And living like a sojourner is putting forward to that home and that promise. And our treatment of the dead reveals our hope in the resurrection to come. Abraham's burying of his bride in the promised land revealed his hope, hope that the Lord would deliver on his promises, hope that not even death would slow or stop the Lord's promises. And friends, Christ offers us that same hope today. Because Jesus is alive, we know that death does not have the final say. So let us mourn from the pain of death and let us live with the hope of faith. Death is undone. Jesus has won. 
We overcome in Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to a text this morning like this and we are constantly reminded of sin and the consequence of it. But Father, knowing the distance that you went and the obstacle you overcome, we we approach it with hope. We know that you have paid through the blood of Christ and you have overcome through his resurrection. Father, help us to hold those things together. Help us to reveal through our our actions and our words and how we mourn and what we do and everything in our life. Help us to have these principles that reveal this hope that we have in Jesus. And Father, we pray that by your spirit you would comfort those this morning who are weeping and mourning. And Father, we pray that you would uphold those this morning who are trying to rise And Father, we pray that you would encourage and exhort those this morning that are striving to live by faith and show the hope we have and give them guidance and help and encouragement by your spirit to do that. And Father, we pray that you would just help all of us to be living lives that speak and reveal of who Jesus is and the truth that he is alive, that we have hope in him. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.